Right, turning your Bibles to First Timothy chapter one, been looking at a few messages here in the first chapter of First Timothy. Just thought we'd continue on through this, at least this first chapter. The title of the message is "Glory in His Saving Mercy." Start reading in verse fifteen. Faithful is the word, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. But for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering as a pattern to those being about to believe on him to everlasting life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before about you, in order that you might war a good warfare by them, holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away and made shipwreck as to the faith. Among these are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I've delivered to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Last week we looked at verses 15 and 16 and uh, spent time showing that God reveals to the sinners he saves exactly what kind of sinner that they are so that they will know it. The message last week was, what kind of sinner does Christ save? Or the kind of sinners that he saves? And what are some of those things that might describe or maybe uh, amplify exactly what the strength of sin is in someone before they're converted? What, what teachings in the scripture would amplify that idea of showing what a sinner is? I just jotted a few down here. And and these are things that uh, a lot of people, most people, or maybe any people would not know unless they read it in the scripture. And the first one, the strength of total depravity, the foundation of it is the guilt of the whole human race by Adam's sin imputed. Now, people just don't know that by nature. It's revealed in the scripture that that's the way it was set up, that God set up this whole system in federal heads, in Adam and in Christ. And the whole world is by nature in Adam and by legal standing in Adam. And that is the first problem, is legal condemnation, coming into the world legally condemned. Another problem that seems to be uh, the strength of total depravity and the sin issue would be what we talk a lot about here, is the deceivableness of self-righteousness. And that being undetected by the natural conscience. So that's not going to be known unless it's read in the word of God and exposed through the gospel, really revealed by the spirit of God to the sinner, that that's what's going on. The other things might be an inability to see the law's demands and to be subject to their demands. I know the natural man does not is not subject to the law of God. They're enemies with God. They can't be subject to the law of God, it says in Romans 8. There is a 
Another one is an inability to see how sin affects the will. Everybody seemingly naturally thinks they have freedom of the will and uh, they know what way is best, the way that seems right. They want to exercise their will and uh, expedite salvation by trying to establish a righteousness of their own. And that is, ex that is coming from the will of man, which we see all the counter verses in the scripture saying salvation is not that way. It's by mercy. Sovereign mercy. And then another strength of sin or total depravity would be the overall lack of spiritual understanding. Romans 3 says there's none that understands by nature. There are some that think this idea that Satan tried to convince Eve that in the day you eat of, you're going you're gonna to see something and it's going to be like to your benefit. And uh, religion is still promoting that idea. And they, again, have their way that seems right. And uh, they have no understanding. Zero. And then, lastly, I jotted down here that um, as a result of all those things, they don't really have much need for the true Christ and his gospel. If they've got it all figured out, they have their will working okay, they have their use of their conscience, they think it's working okay, they have um, some form of sincerity and, and moralism, and, you know, they think they're on the right track. They're busy, they're zealous. You know, like some of the in this uh, that Paul warned about in this text here that were teachers of the law. Uh, they think they're taking the high road. Uh, they think they're the go-to guys as far as morality and things. So they think they're bulletproof. But all along the way, as all of natural man's false ideas, it is the deceivableness of unrighteousness. We also talked about Paul explaining he was the chief of sinners, and we looked at some of what that might mean. We also talked, we've said it before, we should probably be arguing with Paul that we are the chief of sinners. And you would think that each person that is a believer knows his own heart better than the heart of fellow believers. So he knows what goes on in his head and he knows that it's uh, most of the time not the best thing that should be going on in his head in reference to sin. So there should be an argument there, a debate between us and Paul as far as who is the chief of sinners. And um, that debate should go on in your head in an honest way, not a false humility way, but maybe the longer that you're in the faith and the more that you mature in the faith and as you grow down in the faith, uh, maybe that argument would become stronger as you go. And we know and can easily see through certain texts what kind of sinner Paul was he named it in our context said he was a blasphemer uh, persecutor and, and injurious in verse 13 and besides that compounding with that he did those things as a Pharisee in other words a teacher of law obedience righteousness which is the worst kind of sin a person can commit we know that we've proven that we always talk about that it's the most offensive, the most deceitful sin, and it competes. Self-righteousness, we know, competes with the very glory of God. What, what God did in Christ, self-righteousness competes with that, and that's the most glorious thing that God did, and that's what his eternal plan points to, is accomplish redemption in Christ. So we can't, that's a hands-off area when it comes to competition. We have to bow to it, look at it, 
and worship in and by and through that message that talks about that purpose of God that played out and made itself manifest in time, how that Christ accomplished redemption. We noticed a remarkable statement in verse 16 that could be easily passed over if we, if we read quickly. And I'll just kind of quote the verse here. But for this cause, so that's on the heels of the context of the previous verse, which is, because I'm chief of sinners, for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first, and again, uh, last week we mentioned that this was not chronologically first, but in priority. Paul named himself preeminently the chief of sinners. So in me preeminently that I'm the chief of sinners, that Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering to me and me being a pattern to those that are about to believe on him for everlasting life. Now this is, uh, as I said, this is easily and quickly passed over and I think it's pretty important that we see what's being mentioned here. And the thrust of, of this verse connected to the one we're going to look at today mainly, which is verse 17. We mentioned before that Paul was a pattern of repentance in the New Testament. I've said that before. Philippians 3 is the strongest. He talks about repentance from dead works in other texts. 2 Timothy 2. And um, just overall, the whole tone of Paul's emphasis against self-righteousness and him having the experience of it, knowing where he's coming from, the experience of being the best at it. And his description there in Philippians 3 does a good job of describing, look, I was in false religion. You guys are trying to do that same false religion. You might as well stop because I was the best at it. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with it. Uh, I'm going to count it as dung and flush it. So why are you wasting your time with it? I was the best that there was. And it, and it was vain. It was vanity. So Paul's the pattern for repentance. And it makes sense that he's the pattern for repentance if he's the pattern for being the chief of sinners as being a Pharisee. Those things are vitally connected. And you have to keep them together. Which pretty much shows the, the, the idea that he was a pattern because he was the kind of sinner that he was. And these are the kind, is what he's saying here. These are the kind that Christ came to save. Now, what's significant here is that it ties to our evangelistic section of our Chosen in Christ series. And I want to relate it to maybe your own experience in maybe other churches that you participate in before you were, before you were here, before you were converted. Some may have been converted before they came here, but push it back before, you know, pre-conversion, your ideas when it comes to these things and try to tie all these things together. And what I'm about to say, it concerns contrasting and comparing and making distinctions of things that you see in the Word of God, things that are primarily hidden from the world. So that's why I said think of your own experience before you were converted because these things were hidden from you as they were me. So when we've clearly seen the overwhelming biblical evidence of uh, what the worst problem of man is, which is, again, um, the unregenerate heart is self-righteous. It just produces idolatry and self-righteousness and dead works. What is that problem? What's that look like? And what's it connected to? Um, and we can just say that statement and just lay it there. But, I mean, there's implications to it. 
this problem of self-righteousness. It's, it's not like any other sin. And when I say that, I'm not saying any other sin is not bad. All sin is bad. But self-righteousness, as we said last week and probably the week before that, the sin of self-righteousness will keep you out of heaven. It'll keep you from entering into the presence of God. Your pride and your self-righteousness is, again, in direct competition to the main thing of the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, which is the righteousness of Christ. And these two things oppose each other. Now, we have a habit of looking at, and, and we did last week, maybe the week before, of, you know, Christ hung out with these people that were, you know, the the uh, sinners and the scribes and Pharisees said, "What do you, what do you, what's your uh, master doing eating with sinners?" So these sinners were the kind that that weren't looking to their like the tax collector. He wasn't looking to his ripping people off as a plea to get to heaven. If they're prostitutes, they weren't saying they won't be saying in that day, "But Lord, Lord, didn't I turn many tricks?" And shouldn't that get me into the kingdom? The heroin addict is not going to say, but Lord, Lord, didn't I shoot up massive amounts of heroin? And shouldn't that? These outward acts that are obvious and against the conscience clearly are not things that are going to be people's plea when they get to judgment. But these deeds of righteousness are deceiving and those will be people's plea at the judgment and those directly compete against the righteousness of Christ that's why it's deceiving we've seen that in so many different ways and we try to see that from different aspects as time goes on and try to talk about it more intelligently and put it in whatever context we're dealing with and this is one this morning that is I think pertinent to to the subject and it has uh, it's also tied to the conscience we're dealing with the conscience here uh, a couple places in this chapter and with a cleansed conscience that's been cleansed through the means of the Spirit and the Gospel, one will be able to think about this rightly and make adjustments in how they serve, their motive, how they talk about it, what to look out for, etc. So having seen that, we have an example after Example after example of the exposure of that particular sin of self-righteousness over and over and over again, comparing uh, the religious Pharisee types to the sinners that the Pharisees would accuse. We see those comparisons. We'll look at one here in a little while. We even see the comparison of the, how do I say, uh, judicial strength and hatred of self-righteousness by Christ himself. For example, in Matthew 11. We don't have to turn there. You're familiar with it. Uh, he's preaching to some Judaizer types, some that are like a dabble in the Old Covenant, teachers of the law, just all related to a works righteousness, law righteousness type religion. He's talking to those, and they're rejecting his truth, his gospel. And we know there toward the end of the chapter, he said to them that it to the self-righteous gospel rejectors, that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Now that's a tremendous statement. That's a shocking statement. And most people, when they 
hear that or read that, they, they can't make heads or tails of it and they just roll on to the next subject. But this is what we've been hammering on. When we, did, when we make comparisons and contrasts and put focus on what opposes what. That's why we say, uh, I have a habit of saying that self-righteousness is the, is the absolutely worst and most deceiving sin that there is. That statement that Christ made in Matthew 11 is uh, a mathematical comparison when he says more tolerable. That's a measure. That has to do with judicial strength. At judgment. Now, think of that and think of their attitudes, those religious gospel haters, who would love to have just as well killed the Sodomites by stoning. Because you know they believe in that. Like these Sodomites, they should be stoned. And if somebody gave them the green light to do that, well, yeah, yeah. And gladly. And they would do it thinking they're doing God a service. We know this is the case. Those same ones, even though they're not, they don't believe in Christ, I'm going to compare these two so-called Christians that have the same idea here in a minute. But those same ones who are the Judaizers that would like to stone the Sodomites, they would maybe look at some of Paul's writing, slivers of it, portions of it, and buddy up to Paul and say, yep, I agree. It's like I could have written that myself, the scribe might say. And one of them is in Romans 1. Let's go there. Romans chapter 1. And um, look, start in verse 18. Now, this is on the heels. Verse 18 is on the heels of the verse that we always go to when we talk about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Verse 17. I don't want to spend too much time dealing with each verse here, but... We're coming here for a reason. It's driving at this point that I was getting at. And now remember, this is tied to last week's message of what the, the kind of sinners that Christ came to save, which that was our message last week, title. This week, the title is Glory in His Saving Mercy, referring to Paul himself as being a pattern. I hope I can tie this all together and, and uh, it'll make sense to you. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, notice this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Do you think that that unrighteousness is directly opposed to the previous verse, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? Yes, indeed it is. It is for sure. Verse 19, because... The thing which may be known of God is clearly revealed within them, for God revealed it to them. For the unseen things of him, now I'm tempted to stay here and, and hang out about it with a bunch of different things, but I'm going to run out of time if I do that. But I just want you to notice a couple things. First of all, the unrighteousness, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, verse uh, 18. And then... Notice that it says these things that may be known of God are clearly revealed within them. So they have a conscience and they can see things by his creation. Let's get ready to talk about that. They have remnants of a rational mind because they were created in the image of God. Even though they're fallen, they have remnants of a rational mind. And these things are not necessarily favorable to them because these things work against them because of their nature. 
And notice this, the unseen things. Now, in our, in our text, we're going to get to it. Hopefully, we have time. It's going to talk about the invisible God. Notice this, the unseen things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being realized by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead for them to be without excuse. Because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God. Neither were they thankful. How can they be thankful? Now this, I don't, want to, I don't want to camp out here too much, but this thing of thankfulness is kind of a big deal. And you know, when I hear about common grace, the issue of common grace, how that people just want to just slather on this whole big issue about how good and merciful God is to all people without exception, and how that he loves them all, and he gives them all this stuff. He gives them rain, and he gives them just this, that, and the other. My question is right here, are they thankful? And if God gives things to people knowing that they won't be thankful, what's that going to do for those people in the end? The more things that they get and the less thankful they are, you would think this is continually heaping up more and more and more condemnation. You would think it is because it does. But they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. So they got more information and it got darker. Does that sound like common grace? <laughs> no. What'd they do? What, what does man do by nature? It's connected, it's related to his pride and self-righteousness. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they did something as a result. They changed, verse 23, the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, came from their imagination, an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, see how that works? That's what happens to man. That's what he does. That's about the best that you can expect from man. This is the way that seems right. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Now, here's where the scribes and Pharisees are, are just like their mouth watered. Amen, Paul, go for it. This is great. They could maybe even give some commentary on it, they think, right? Verse 25, for they changed the truth of God into a lie. They worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I just want to take a snapshot of that last part of that phrase. The creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I want to relate that later to our phrase in verse 17. I think it is about the immortal, invisible, all wise God. Every now and then in scripture, you'll see, you'll see things like this where the writer talks about God. Paul does a lot. Talks about God and he stops and he says something about God. He makes a statement, like a praise and a worship statement about God's character and how and why he should be worshipped. And, and there's one example, but there's several in the, in the scripture. 
For this cause, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable affections. For even their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men, working out shamefulness and receiving in themselves the recompense which was fitting for their error. And again, the scribes and Pharisees are cheering. Amen, Paul. Verse 28, And even as they did not think fit to have God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do the things not right. And then the scribes and Pharisees would stop there. They would stop right there and flatter Paul and really not want to talk about whatever else is written after that because there's some other things that might put them on the list. But they would, they would be agreeable to this. And uh, many, if not most, you know, flat-out conservative religious people would say here in this context, they would say, look at verse 28. I mean, there's really no hope of any kind for, for this kind of sinner. And the Pharisees would applaud that. And the attitude with that statement would be looking down on these kind of people mentioned. And again, not much going past that last comma after to do the things not right, comma, end quote. They would stop it, not looking at the rest of the list. They would look down on these particular people, the homosexual, and they would isolate the context just to that. Because they're not homosexual, they would look down on them and say, hey, yeah, they get, they, get what they, they get what they get from God. And they would uh, kind of make fire and brimstone and and stuff coming down on that city and kind of chuckle at it like, uh, you know, that's what they get. As if they're not any sort of sinner at all. This is an attitude that can arise in man's heart. So that take that attitude with those ideas and then look at Paul who said, that he himself was a chief of sinners. In other words, being the best of the best of the Pharisees, saying that now this all providentially, sovereignly played out to make me, Paul, the main pattern of who God shows mercy to, the chief of sinners. Paul said, I'm chief. Take that idea of Christ saying to the, the other religious people, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of Sodom for them for the land of Sodom, that it will be for you. Paul was more self-righteous than those people that Christ was talking to. He says, I'm chief, I own it, I'm the preeminent sinner. Therefore, this is shown for this reason, so that this I could be a pattern, so that God is gets glory out of showing mercy to the chief of sinners for people that are about to believe the gospel. Why? So that they can't say, and we talked a little bit about that last week, so that they can't say, well, God, he can't save me. I'm, I don't know why he would mess with me. I'm too bad of a sinner. Paul just wipes it out right there. These cascading arguments that are connected to the idea of self-righteousness. He said, I was it. I was the captain of it. I was, plus I was these other things, a blasphemer. I was injurious. 
I had this pride. And on top of it, being a Pharisee when I was doing it. In other words, can we say to a person, you know what, there might be some hope for you if there was hope for this guy right here. And I can tell you that there was hope for me because I'm arguing with Paul that I think I might be worse than him. And I can tell you about me. And I've been given grace. I've been rescued. And my sins are covered. There was hope for me. So you can look at these people that are hearing the gospel and trying to, ahead of time, anticipate whether they are elect or not. We've talked about this in our election series, which is a weird idea, but I've, I've seen it happen in people's mind. I may, well, maybe I'm just so bad I'm not one of the elect. Paul said he was the chief of sinners and that he was a pattern. And we're going to see the rest of the connecting uh, verses here that kind of just immerses our thoughts more in that idea as we go along here. So we concluded last week that what kind of sinners that Christ came to save, first of all, were chosen sinners, those that were elected before the foundation of the world. And those sinners are shown by the gospel, by the use of the means of the gospel, by the revelation of the Spirit of God, just what kind of sinners they are. And they know it. They're shown it. It's revealed to them. And then after that, so here's the question, because all of us here in this room are after that point. Do justified sinners grow in their understanding of the sin issue after they believe the gospel? I hope so. Of course they do. And I think you see that in even some of the personal writers of the New Testament that wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. And, and in some of the issues in the churches that were written about, people learn about how to deal with sin, and there's instruction even in these letters how to deal with sin when sin happens. So having clarified all that for the, for the context, what we already looked at, and the reason for what we said about what we said in verse 16, look at verse 17, and, and then maybe it'll make, maybe it will make more sense in its immediate context. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, there's two other versions. I want to just read that same verse real quickly. And there, there are two literal versions. The LITV, which is the literal version of the modern King James version that I use the most of. Some of you might have heard J.P. Green. He's involved in that translation. And um, sometimes it's not real smooth. It's kind of choppy, but it helps when I look at some of these versions. The other one is Young's Literal Translation. LITV says, Now to the King Eternal, incorruptible, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And then uh, Young's Literal says, And to the King of Ages, the incorruptible, invisible, only wise God is honor and glory to the ages of the ages. Amen. Notice it seems that Paul he just springs into some of this worship language out of the blue here. Now, I had mentioned in Romans 1, I think it was verse 26, where it talked about the true God, the creator. And then it had like a little praise and worship statement. And then it said, Amen. 
And it looks like there's something here like that. And we, and we see that. It's, to me, it kind of reminds me of what we've said about how some of the writers, especially Paul does, going back to, for example, uh, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For the God who caused light to shine out of darkness. So here he makes a statement about making a distinction what God he's talking about. When he does that, he's, he's opposing or comparing God to idols. In Galatians, he said, The God who separated me from my mother's womb, he does it again. False gods do not separate people from their mother's womb. What he's saying is here, we're talking about the God of all creation, the one that runs <laughs> creation, the one that kills and makes alive. I remember in um, the Old Testament, I think it's Kings, First or second, he, he says, I'm God, and there's none like me. I wound, I heal, I kill, and I make alive. That's in harmony with the God who separated me from my mother's womb. He's the one that is in charge of, through his sovereignty and through his providence, who comes in the world, who goes out of the world, and when and where and why, because he's sovereign over it. So there's those statements sometimes in Scripture that just, just spring out at you and make these distinctions. Like, we're not just talking about any, any old God. We're talking about the true and living God who's in charge of all things, runs all things, is sovereign, and has a purpose that he makes manifest in time, who's declared the end from the beginning. And this is, uh, of course, has a lot of, like, worship language in it, but I don't want us to see it just as one of those without seeing its connection to the immediate context. The first word, now. Now, if you, and I'll read the Young's literal again. And to the king of kings. That's the way it starts out. And. Well, that's, if you look that word up and see the usage of it, it's a continuative word. It means but, and, also, or more over. So it's not like Paul stopped and he said, now, and started a new subject. It was a, it's a continuation of the same subject, and that's why I want us to see how the thrust of this in its context is referring to what he's already said. To the king, this is God overall, trinity, eternal. Some of the other versions used the word ages. It's just talking about Perpetuity. I think the word actually is eon. You've heard about you heard that use of eons and eons. That's the word. Immortal. And the word here, immortal, that word's used two different ways, but here it's used this way that it's used is incorruptible or undecaying. And invisible. Just simply means you can't see. And and what what would two reasons at least be? Well, God's spirit, God is spirit, which would make him invisible. A lot of people that are earthy or carnal, with their logic, they would say, well, if you can't see it, it's not there. If you can't see it, it's not a being. Right? I mean, some people would say that. Secondly, first, he can't be seen because he is spirit. Secondly, men by nature are spiritually blind, so... Even a description of words about him coming from his own thoughts, 
spoken through the means of the scripture. They can't see him anyway because they can't understand. They don't have faith, in other words. We walk by faith, not by sight. And for God's people, faith is sight. Faith is sight. And sight is faith. Not talking about the sight that non-believers have, but the sight, the new sight we have. The sight of faith. Not the sight of the bad sight, uh, empirical evidence using our five senses and, uh, you know, whacked out carnal knowledge and wisdom. Not that. But now we have been given the mind of Christ. And it goes on to say the only wise God, of course, again, compared to idols and contrasted with the wisdom of man that we've been warning about in several different verses connected to our study here in this first chapter. So according to his purpose, the unseen God, we know, has made himself known or manifest in time through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who, as it says in Hebrews 1.3, who being in the sh uh, shining splendor of his glory and the express image of his essence. So we know in time that Christ came and this God who was invisible was made manifest in the person of Christ as Christ took on flesh. And this was the means whereby God could be made known is not only through the person of Christ, but through the word of Christ. I just quoted Hebrews 1.3. We know what 1.1 says, that in times past he spoke through the prophets, but in the, the end of time he's spoken through his son. And here he is. Came in flesh, and he's going to say something. He's going to be the final prophet in authority for what means what overall. And then we know he taught his chief apostle here, Paul, and that's who we're learning from here in this context, who turns around and teaches one of his students, Timothy. So you see the, the passing along of the truth and the importance of it. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. So Christ is, Christ is the one that comes down to earth, and God shows us himself through the Son. Everything about him, what was prophesied about him, everything he says. And these things are revealed only to God's people. And in verse uh, Colossians 2 and verse 1, For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. I've been noticing throughout a lot of Paul's writings the urgency. I continue to see the urgency that Paul has in almost any given situation and the seriousness of what's going on and the problems he's dealing with that he has to counter in so many different situations. Verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and to all riches, notice, of the full assurance of understanding to the full knowledge of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Notice, he just spoke Christ's name, in whom, verse 3, are hidden, what? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say that not anyone should beguile you 
with enticing words. So he goes back to the warning stance again. Here's the one that is the fountain of all truth, knowledge, and wisdom. It's glorious that you have him. Now that you have him, use this means and don't let people steal that treasure or take your focus off of Christ with enticing words and beguile you. And that word is has a deceitful base. Like Eve was beguiled. Paul here, he could have just as soon said the same thing that he said in Corinthians where I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I don't want these people to tempt you as Eve was tempted by the serpent by these lies. He's saying the same thing here. So here he's talking about this Christ that the Father expresses himself to make himself manifest. The invisible God becomes visible in the person of Christ, in the incarnation, and becomes the spokesperson, the final spokesperson, the final prophet to lay out the truth Then he teaches his apostles. Go to Psalm 145. There's some language here that's related to this praise worship statement in our text. Psalm 145, starting in verse 1, we'll just read, uh, decide when to stop as we go through. Praise of David, I will lift you up, my God, O King, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And there is no searching out his greatness. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty and of your wonderful works. Let's just stop a second. And since we're in the, in the message, we talked about self-righteousness. What does the guy in Matthew 7 do? In reference to his plea about what he has done, he talked about many wonderful works. And this is the word of God right here. I will speak of the glories of your honor, of your majesty, of your wonderful works, of his, God's wonderful works. Verse 6, and men shall speak of the might of your awesome works. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of pity, slow to anger and of great mercy. Now, we know and have already studied that God said that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy which means not everybody. He is in charge through his sovereignty, has the divine right to show mercy. And he said, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. That's what I, that's what I desire, he says. And as it goes on, it said, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Now, some might want to press this and say this is common grace. Had just made a statement which ties in with other things concerning that he has mercy on whom he will. If you think this is talking about the reprobate, 
Go to Psalm 73 and read what that says about the reprobate when you get time. Talk about putting him on a slippery path. Verse 10, all your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. Remember the others, they can't be thankful. They don't know how to be thankful because they're ignorant of really who he is, as we read in Romans 1 earlier. They speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known the sons of men, his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is the everlasting kingdom and your rule endures throughout all generations. Do you see how this is related to the statement in our text in verse 17 concerning that he is the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God. And as a result of that, there should be honor and praise going in his direction because of that. Now, notice this in, for example, in Psalm here, it's not just talking about just his sheer power and sovereignty and all these different things divorced from the gospel. It talks about in here his righteousness and his mercy and that we shall sing of his righteousness. And it talks about his kingdom. Well, we know that he's the king of righteousness, sits on his throne of righteousness, holding a scepter of righteousness. We know in the person of Christ, he's the Lord, our righteousness. This is directly connected to God and his truth of his gospel. Now look at the latter part of our text in verse uh, 17. And it ends up saying concerning this God who is all these things. It says be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the whole line in this verse is tied to the fact that Paul was shown mercy as the chief of sinners. And was a pattern for that mercy as well as a pattern for repentance of self-righteousness, which was in Philippians 3 and other places. So that's the context right there. That's the way it kind of ends up before it goes to the next sentence. Even before Paul was thought of on the earth by people, that worship and praise statement would be true, who God is. But in the context, it's referring to this work that God did in Paul through the Lord Jesus Christ, showing mercy on him, the chief of sinners, so that it could be a pattern for God's people from here on out. That's pretty significant. And if you just fly through there, you'll miss it. So verse 18, he says, This charge I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies, which went on before on you, in order that you might war a good warfare by them. So here he's talking about the use of the means of everything that went into the training of Timothy. It's not necessarily talking about some maybe Old Testament prophecy specific to the future coming of Timothy being trained by Paul. That's not what it's talking about. There's nothing there. Commentators have searched. It's talking about, as I said a few minutes ago, how that the information and the truth was passed down. Paul was taught directly by Christ, and then Paul turns around and he, he calls Timothy my son, talks about begetting him 
by the truth earlier up through there. And he's saying the importance of the faith that's being brought down. And then he, in another spot, he talks about the, the raising of him by his uh, mom and grandma, if I remember correctly. And the scriptures that make one wise unto salvation, he was schooled in from a child. So all this, all of this is going his way. He's had good reports from different churches. And Paul's saying, look, I'm going to use this guy for the future propagation of the gospel. That's why I'm investing time in him. So in this sense, that's what it's talking about, the prophecies that are on you. So Paul is like communicating to Timothy, look, <laughs> Timothy, you know the urgency. You've been taught. I've taught you in the past. I'm coming back to teach anymore. I'm charging you to do these things. You see the significance, the importance, the urgency. We seem to be on the same page, same team. I'm not going to go to somebody and talk about this who's just lackadaisical, doesn't care who's going to drop the ball. I'm investing in you, my time, my energy, and um, my spirit bears witness with your spirit. I've got confidence that God's going to work in you to do these things that I say for the future of the church. He's just making use of the means, in other words. You don't have to turn there, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, pulling down of imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. That's our, that's our means, the scripture, and these doctrines that are in the scripture. Verse 19 it starts out holding faith. This is referring to the faith. Of course, we do that in faith and by faith because the just shall live by faith and, and we walk in faith and so on. But this is talking about holding this doctrine of Christ, the gospel, without wavering, you know, like standing on it and in it. So this is just Paul just communicating again. Look, you've got the means. I'm instructing you, hold this. It's kind of like a modern, you know, don't drop the ball. Hold faith. And a good conscience, it says. So this is a, and we know about a cleansed conscience. This is one that's been the conscience of a believer is through, you know, a new heart. They're regenerate. They've been given repentance of dead works, which is what the dirty conscience produces. And the guilt and shame and etc. of the false gospel is stripped away. We're not counting on that because that fails. That directs us in the wrong direction, wrong object of faith, wrong set of motives, wrong assurance and everything else. So it's a cleansed conscience which sets us up on a new foundation upon the rock of Christ, his righteousness. Now we do things not to get to heaven or to stay out of hell. We do things now by faith, in love out of thankfulness, knowing that it has nothing to do with our acceptance. Zero. We are only and always accepted in Christ because of who he is and what he has done. So we hold faith in a good conscience. So this is so that we can, can and will uprightly walk. You know, there's things that sometimes if believers are immature or not schooled or just sometimes they just might they might fall because in their minds they don't have the uh, structural, foundational idea in their mind when they do something. And they do it off of the wrong platform. 
and it's usually pretty quickly recognized. If it's not recognized personally by them, there'll be someone that's more mature that'll come up beside them and say, you're not walking uprightly according to the gospel. This is inconsistent. What you're doing here in reference to what you're saying doctrinally or your method or whatever is, is not consistent with the gospel. And God's people are taught that way. They see that and they grow by that. Could be hypocrisy and anything to do with, for example, Peter, when he switched tables. I think that's exactly what Paul said. You're, you're not walking uprightly when you do that. You see, it doesn't match. Peter said, oh, yeah. And then he repented by grace. This, of course, has to do with, you know, not being a man pleaser. Not trying to tickle people's ears and so on, flatter people and, and gain numbers, power, fame, money, whatever. It goes on to say, it says a good conscience, which some, talking about apostates, and perhaps Paul was urgently, he warned Timothy and he begged him. Remember, don't let these people teach. These teachers of the law, they're teaching the law in an unlawful way. Don't let them teach. I'm warning you, I'm begging you. And he might have been talking about these people here where he says, which some have put away, it's not consistent with the faith and a good conscience. It seems like they've put that away and uh, they've made shipwreck as to the faith. Or in other words, they've deviated from the gospel. As it said way up in the chapter, it talked about swerving from the gospel. And that was a negative thing. And those were the ones that were teachers of the law. So these here have a shipwreck. I was looking up some of the words here. They're stranded in reference to navigation. When you have people, especially in, in leadership, and it's good to have those that are under the leadership that are trained, that no matter what happens, there's good navigation in the gospel. <laughs> you have no idea how important this is. I, I think you do, but I'm just, I keep harping on it like Paul is urgent in all his things. As I keep asking, are you sure you know how important this is? You gotta have navigation. Something is said wrong, something happens wrong, a wrong means, a wrong method. Shipwreck can happen if there's not proper gospel navigation. Staying on the staying firm, like he's exhorting Timothy here. Hold the faith in a good conscience. Because if you don't You'll lose navigation, shipwreck. Let's wind this up real quick here. Verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. He's not messing around. He is calling out these people's names, and they are enemies of the cross. Let me read two texts, both out of 2 Timothy, that names these guys. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18 says, And their word will eat like a gangrene, I think King James says canker, among whom Hymenaeus and Philetus, so he names Hymenaeus, who he named in chapter 1 that we just looked at, who have erred concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and who've overthrown the faith of some. So what happened there? Talking about the means was passed on of a lie, the means was passed on to other people, now they're shipwreck, right? That's what that caused. 2 Timothy 4.14 and 15 says, names the other guy that's mentioned in the last verse of chapter 1. Alexander, 
The coppersmith showed many evil things to me. The Lord will give back to him according to his works. You also should beware of him, for he has greatly withstood our words. So there's a warning. He called out names. Paul's a pattern of so many different things. You think he should be a pattern of seeing things as important enough to call out people's names? Probably, yeah. That'd be a good idea. Just make sure you know what you're doing when you do it. Make sure you're accurate. So in the first chapter of, of uh, 1 Timothy here, we see the urgency again of Paul has for sound doctrine in the church. And Paul seems like he always has the same attitude no matter what. Even if he's writing from prison or not, he has the same consistent focus of the urgency of the truth and not swerving from the truth. And we need to be that way and learn from him as a pattern. I hope that uh, I, I tried to work hard to keep this whole chapter in its context. And sometimes it takes work. And I think we have a habit of just flying through stuff. And, you know, we might see in like one chapter, well, I've heard like seven different messages from different preachers in that chapter. And those are, you know, separate from the whole context sometimes. And a lot of times we'll just pile stuff up like that and not see everything the way it flows. It's helpful, I think, so that nothing is uh, skipped. These ideas of, of seeing, after your conversion, seeing, you know, God has graciously given me, uh, cleansed my conscience and given me the truth of Christ's righteousness. And that's it right there. That's why the gospel is the power of God and salvation. I never would have seen that unless somebody gave me the gospel and the Spirit opened my eyes to it, gave me faith to see it. And then after that is that takes place, and then you live your Christian life, and you're supposed to walk according to that. And, and what we sometimes experience of looking at people a certain way, that should be corrected by the gospel. And that's why we need the gospel continuously to train us. You know, it's like sometimes two steps forward, one step back, or, or whatever. So it's a learning process. So there's a maturity process. And we see that in ourselves and we see that in other people. When people do mature, we see it sometimes more slowly in ourselves if, if we're honest. But it should affect the way we deal with people. So the command, the commands there in First uh, John talks about um, believing the gospel and loving your brethren. So those are vitally connected together. And if we believe that gospel now and it's... Our acceptance is only in his righteousness and not in what we do. That does trickle over to the way we treat each other in reference to forgiveness, the way we view each other. If I enjoy the gospel view, I judge myself saved by the gospel, and I enjoy the fact that the Father, as Christ is, so am I in the world. As Christ is perfect always, God accepts him perfectly always, and I'm in the world with all my problems, I'm accepted in Christ. I enjoy God seeing me that way. I should turn right around and see you, and see you, and see you the same way. Accept you in Christ, not by all these things that I'm always remembering that are wrong about you. 
You know what I mean? Because we do that with everybody. We see everybody's flaws. We don't want anybody to see our flaws. So why don't we turn around and not see everybody else's flaws? So this is what covers a multitude of sins, as it says, you know, this, this gracious attitude. And the gospel continually should remind us of this. Like, I'm forgiven for Christ's sake, therefore why can't I turn around and forgive another believer for Christ's sake? Instead of this weird idea that we have, it's an Armenian idea that would cause people to jump through hoops to earn our forgiveness. That's an Armenian idea. And yet we gravitate toward that because that's what we've been saturated in all of our life. It's Our whole life is a works for merit system. We were taught that by our parents in the house, not just at church. If you're good, you'll get this. You know, you go to work, you want to you want a merit raise. When you don't get a merit raise and you've done a good job, it seems like you've got some way to argue, you know, but not in salvation. What has Abraham found according to the flesh? Not before God and he can't glory in God. So so our our world system down here in this earthy where we live is a meritorious system that sometimes comes into the church and it's and it should not because it's a different system altogether but there is a relation to that form of looking down on people in connection with repentance gospel repentance in other words you know self-righteousness in a gospel sense they're connected probably more than we know but they are different for the sake of discussion one is being bad toward your brother, which is not good. And the other is downgrading the work of Christ. And I don't think we practice that anymore, downgrading the work of Christ. And if it sneaks up on us, it's because of we've ignored all these warnings that Paul's talking to Timothy about. Stand firm in the faith. Hold the faith. Don't swerve from it. Otherwise, shipwreck. And I got to write a scolding letter to you guys to straighten you guys out, you know. And we, we should learn from those lessons.